Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the 29th MBT Fireside Chat. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, Keith, just fine. Thank you. Good. Listen, before we start, you're fresh back from the MBT LA event, which we hear was a great success. Uh, congratulations to Dagda, James, Justin, and the rest of the team on a job well done. Now, there's a real buzz going around about Los Angeles, Tom. So just what did you discuss that everyone is talking about? Like Adam asks, uh, can you share with us what we might expect to see in any of the videos that Justin now has the very unenviable task of editing? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to let uh, Justin talk about that unenviable task of editing. Uh, hopefully, uh, it's not uh, as terrible as it could be. We did have some some new equipment there, which gave uh, Justin at least a video and audio track that were already matched perfectly from beginning to end. So he didn't have that to do. So that was that was new. We were trying out some of our equipment we're going to take on our cultural connection tour um, early next year, and we stayed up till midnight trying to get it all working uh, before the before uh, we started on on Saturday. But it all did work. Uh, one way or another, we we found a way to get it to work. So uh, we, I think we have good good audio, good video, and you'll get a, a really good uh, version of it. It should be very high quality. What I talked about that was kind of the buzz is that I introduced uh, a whole set of double slit experiments, quantum mechanics experiments that were designed by me to do several things. One, uh, they were to test MBT uh, ideas about quantum physics. And secondly, they were to verify that this is indeed a virtual reality. And lastly, they were to create some new information about the, the observer, you know, the man in the loop in the double slit experiment. The observer is a very important part of that experiment and trying to see exactly what that observer brings and what the parameters are and you know whether the observer could be um, subjectively or, or has to be objectively observing uh, and to what degree does that take place. The amount of correlation that's required between knowledge of the which way data and, and the result, that sort of thing. So there's a set of experiments that, that do that. Um, <clears throat> what I did was I took the basic virtual reality concepts that MBT has been talking about for the past, well, I don't know, decade, I guess, but most uh, mostly in the last five or six years, and applied those concepts to quantum mechanics. So if this is a virtual reality, and if the virtual reality works the way MBT uh, says that it does or, or discusses it, then we should get these results, you know, out of quantum experiments for these reasons. So it's a, it's a virtual reality explanation of why quantum mechanics works the way it does as opposed to the current explanation, which is, we have no idea how it works, it's just weird science. With a, with a VR uh, uh, assumption at the beginning, then basically it's not weird science. You can logically look at the problem and come up with how it's gonna work and what the result's gonna do 
without doing any math at all, because it's now not weird science. It's logical science from a VR perspective. And you can predict how that logic, how that VR logic is going to flow and what the outcome is going to be. Well, in the process of re-describing quantum mechanics in terms of virtual reality, I came with, up with several experiments that um, are rather dramatic. And those experiments would, would uh, do something that is completely impossible to be done. You know, it's a, what I, what I called when I was having the discussion was, uh, you know, we needed to perform a miracle. Now the double slit experiment does perform a miracle all by itself. The miracle is that when you send individual particles to those, you know, shoot them at those two slits and there is no which way data, those particles for some miraculous reason, arrange themselves on the screen in a diffraction pattern. So all the little particles just, uh, uh, magically kind of arrange themselves in this probability distribution that we see when we look at uh, wave diffraction. And that's the big mystery, of course, in quantum mechanics. Why does it do that? You know, and we know kind of the how it works in the sense that we know it's probabilistic and we have evolved quantum mechanics math that will compute that answer. But quantum mechanics has no clue as to why it might actually do that. So that's what we call a miracle. A miracle is something that happens that has no known explanation. It's outside of our understanding of reality to explain it. So that's a good definition of what a miracle is. It's something unexplainable. But, of course, in this double slit, it's not just a one-off. It happens exactly the same way every time you do the experiment. So it's a repeatable miracle, which are hard to come by. Anyway, uh, what I have come up with is a couple of more miracles, several things that could not be explained ordinarily. One of them is that if you take a, a random number generator, and these come in two kinds. They come in calculated kinds, which are called pseudo-random, and they come in event-based kinds. Usually the event is the decay of a radioactive source. And the event-based kinds are entirely natural. There is no way of predicting what the next one will be, whereas in pseudo-random numbers, it's, a, it's an algorithm that produces numbers that, from the, from the smaller view, look like they're random, but they're not actually, they're just random-like, and they're created by an algorithm. Uh, but these event-based numbers are truly random uh, numbers generated typically, like I say, by a radioactive source that gets detected. Um, let's say if you want a binary one or zero, then you'd have two hemispheres around the source, and if the emitted particle triggers the Geiger counter and say the left hemisphere, then that's a one, and in the right hemisphere, that's a zero. So there's no telling the direction in which a particle will fire out of a, of a radioactive source. It comes out randomly in any direction. So then you get a random one or zero based on that device. Well, one of my experiments actually will predict which hemisphere that random uh, particle is going to hit, which means it's not really random. We're predicting... Uh, how that radioactive element will decay and what direction the particle will be in. That's flatly impossible. So uh, that's the first impossible thing I do. And 
Another one is I, I looked at the experiment that was done uh, by Scully et al. Uh, it was a uh, delayed eraser quantum experiment. It's one I talked about in Calgary, and I think I talked about it again uh, in the Marseille uh, uh, talks. It was uh, published in the year 2000, but the experiment was done in 1999, I think. Anyway, uh, I rearranged that experiment a little bit and, uh, and uh, changed it around such that Using a virtual reality model, we can predict whether or not a, a half-silvered mirror, which is called a beam splitter, will reflect or transmit. Now, a beam splitter is a thing that um, they say half-silvered. That means that the silvering over the piece of glass, it's a piece of glass that's, that uh, will reflect half the time and transmit the light through the glass the other half the time. And if you want to think about it, think about a, a mirror, of course, that's silvered, would reflect all the time. But if you only silver it in little specks and little spatters all over the place, if you've got that kind of silvering, then sometimes the light will hit one of those specks and reflect, and sometimes the light will miss those specks and transmit. And if just half the surface is covered in these specks, then it's a 50-50 chance that it'll reflect or transmit. That's a piece of glass with a coating on it. And in this experiment, we get to predict, or we can predict whether it will transmit or whether it will reflect. Again, completely impossible to be able to do that. Um, what allows us to do that is, of course, viewing the, viewing the experiment in terms of virtual reality and uh, taking a, a guess, actually, about what how the system is going to react to the situation we give it in the experiment. And my, um, the way I came up with, with the uh, idea of how the virtual reality would react is whether or not it was going to take the most efficient path that it could take to um, make sure that its constraints are met. Constraints being that, that uh, what happens in this reality has to be continuous. It can't have any uh, uh, you know, breaks in it. It can't have any things that are, uh, uh, they say, uh, uh, discontinuous. It has to be a smooth, continuous reality that we're in. So we can't have things that, that kind of each, each thing denies that the other could possibly exist. You know, that kind of thing we can't have. And it has to be in, uh, consistent with, with uh, history and the rule set. So I looked at those and said, what was the simplest way, the most efficient and effective way that the larger consciousness system could uh, compute the result of this experiment? And in doing so, it would have to actually manipulate that random um, reflection or transmission or that random uh, direction that the particle decays in. But remember, this is a virtual reality, so it's a, virtu it's a virtual radioactive particle, and it's a virtual beam splitter made out of virtual material, and it's modeled by the system just like everything else. So if it needs to, to uh, make it non-random, if it needs to, to call out a particular reflection or a particular transmission, then it certainly can do that if it likes. So anyway, that's kind of the... A short story of what I talked about. Now, 
Whether or not these experiments will work that way or not, we won't know until the experiments are done. Um, if my concept of virtual reality being uh, working in the most efficient way is correct, then they will work. It will work pretty much the way that I outlined them. If that's not correct, if it decides to take a circuitous path that is less efficient but uh, maintains the um, uh, the 50-50 transmission reflector, maintains the randomness of the uh, source, then it can do that. It's not that those are impossible. It's just it's going to be a lot more work and a lot more effort for the system to do that, and I'm betting that it won't be that way, that it will uh, be efficient an efficient process. So that's what's going on. Now, if it turns out that I'm wrong on that, then it'll still be very informative. There's no loss here. It's a win-win. If it doesn't work out the way I say, then I'm still going to learn a lot about the system. I'll learn that efficiency isn't necessarily the number one criteria for uh, for picking the one of the multiple ways that any particular calculation can be done. You know, in a virtual reality, there's a, there's a dozen ways to do almost anything, and you get to pick which way you do it. Typically, you pick the most efficient. At least if you're a good programmer, you pick the most efficient, the one that takes the fewest cycles and is the easiest to compute. Um, but there may be other ways. And I'll learn a lot about the, the observer, the man-in-the-loop interface with the quantum mechanics because I have a lot of experiments testing various aspects of that observer um, quantum mechanics inter interaction interface. So it's going to be a win in any case. We'll learn a lot of good stuff, and it's um, going to be a lot of fun to, to uh, wait for these things to be done, and I think they will be. We've had a lot of people. We had a couple of physicists there. We had a guy from, uh, from uh, JPL. And we had a, uh, a mathematician from, um, let's see. Um, Caltech. Caltech, yeah. And both of them were very excited about it. And we had some other technical people there that, that were excited about it. So we have a, we're starting to collect a list of places where this experiment or this, this um, the DVD we're going to make. When Justin gets done with the video, we're going to turn that, not only put it on YouTube, we're going to make a DVD out of it. And that DVD is going to be available to people who would like to do the experiment. So they get the whole, the whole thing in high res so they can read all the charts that only had, you know, 12 point type on them that nobody could read on the screen. Uh, so we have some, some possibilities. People are already scheming how they're going to arrange to get this done in, in uh, universities. And hopefully that'll all come together. So the first thing is, is to make that VD DVD and then to make it available to anybody who you know wants to look at it and thinks they might pass it around. And of course, we will in, we will encourage people to make copies of it if they want. You know, so it's not going to be a secret and it's not going to be a big money maker. But hopefully, we will sell it for enough to just cover expenses. So, you know, the mailing costs and the DVD production costs will be covered. But we want to make it as, uh, as available as possible to, uh, well, to everyone and anyone who's interested in the, in the details. So that's what's coming. And maybe in the next six months or a year, we will have those experiments performed. 
And if indeed they work as I suggested they, they might, it will be a very big deal in the world of physics. It will turn everything upside down. It will be at least as big, if not much bigger, than the double slit experiment was in the 1920s. It will be a huge uh, um, change, C-state change in physics that it's like that, because it will definitely show that this is a virtual reality. Now, physicists have been coming up with experiments to show, to demonstrate that indeed this is a virtual reality. And all of them have kind of, well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. None of them have been just perfectly clear that, oh, yeah, let's see how that experiment came out. It's got to be a virtual reality, no other way to explain it. There have always been other ways to explain it. So none of them have been really decisive. But in this case, if my experiments work the way they say, then it will be as just decisive of it as it can be because there no, is no other way to predict how, how an element will you know, randomly decay or how a beam splitter will randomly transmit or, or reflect. These are things that just are impossible, can't happen. Only in a virtual reality where the, the uh, simulation is virtual can you change those kinds of things if they're calculations that you can easily change so that the reality is virtual. So it will be a, a rather massive uh, uh, upheaval in physics, in science, and I'm hoping that if that happens, we will begin to see the kind of official acceptance of virtual reality, which will lead to the official acceptance of consciousness as the computer, which will lead to the official acceptance that love is the answer. And that would make a huge splash, not only in the world of physics and science, but everywhere. Not only in philosophy, but everywhere. Average people in the street will be affected by that. So this could be the beginning of something big, or it could just be that I and others are going to learn a whole lot more about how reality works than, than, uh, than we knew before, but we still won't have anything you know, completely decisive. So time will tell. I think it's very, very uh, interesting, very exciting to uh, get these out and have a, have a chance for them to actually be done in universities. Of course, just one university doing it won't mean too much. There has to be two or three or four that replicate it, and they all have to agree that that's the way it works. That isn't going to happen like in a couple of months. That's going to take a while, you know, maybe be a year, maybe be two years before all that gets done. But if the first um, one to do it is a very well-known or reputable uh, physics house, then there'll be a scramble to uh, try to verify that in other, in other universities. So it could be a game changer or it could just be a, a, another learning experience where we you know, we get more information that we need. So that's well, kind of the wrap up. That's what the buzz, that's what the buzz is about. And, and, you're, uh, and you're quietly confident, Tom. Yeah, I'm pretty confident about it. You know, I could be wrong. You know, the, the system could say, well, I want to maintain this reality, you know, not be so obvious that it's virtual. Well, of course, they let the double slit experiment go. They were stuck there because they had an interface requirement. The system had to interface between wave and particle. Because now we had the technology to look at particles one at a time in, a, in an experiment that was made for waves, you know, the double slit experiment, which had been done for waves for 
probably a hundred years before we got to the point where we could throw particles at it one at a time. So it needed a, it had a, a boundary value discrepancy. If it didn't make those particles arrange themselves in a diffraction pattern, it would have had one of these situations where the reality would have a two different, two different outcomes that were, um, what do we say? E- each one would prove the other one wrong. You know, you can't have that kind of discrepancy in the reality. So to make that discrepancy go away, we needed those particles to line up in a diffraction pattern when they went through one at a time. So it's a boundary value problem. So the system was forced to show some of its virtual reality tricks by doing that. And I'm hoping these experiments I've come up with will also force the, um, what do we call it, the, the, you know, the, the larger consciousness system or the virtual reality rendering engine uh, will force that process to show a little more of its inner workings, you know, behind the, ca- behind the curtains kind of workings that it has to do because I, in these experiments, I force it to um, take those kinds of measures. And if it is indeed the most efficient is the way it's done, then we'll see these experiments uh, do some pretty uh, miraculous things. It's going to be fascinating to find out either way, Tom. Um, and the fact that yeah. we have a number of teams uh, interested in conducting the experiments is indeed very exciting. Um, next up for us, obviously, is the uh, Cultural Connection Tour, which by the time this video, this fireside chat is put out, will be a, pretty much upon us. I want to take a few moments just to mention a few things about that. Um, Germany is almost certainly going to be sold out by the time uh, people view this, as we only have a few places left at this moment in time. Uh, the response to the workshop has been marvellous uh, from, from Germany and across Europe, so thank you again, all those people watching this who are going to be attending. You're making this whole tour possible. Um, although we can't make any promises at this time, we are working on putting together a special panel of guests for the second day's Q&A in the Auckland workshop. This is still very much in the works at the moment, but it it may turn out to be something rather special and rather unique. Now, Tom, we've talked recently about the amount of work that goes into your preparation for these two-day workshops and how this might very well be the last time that we see you doing such presentations. So I think anyone who might be on the fence about attending may want to bear that in mind. And also with countries such as Australia and New Zealand being such a long way for you to go to present maybe a single day workshop or an event, it's very possible that they will not, we are not going to get back there again after the 2017 tour. So this may be the only opportunity for people to see you in either of these countries. So we urge them to consider attending. They can email me, Keith at mbtevents.com with any questions you might have or they might have, sorry. Okay, on with the questions. Uh, Mike, it is great to have you joining us live from Australia, where it is, uh, I don't know, nearly 5.30 in the morning, all dressed up, ready to head <laughs> off to work. You're going to be joining us in, in, in Sydney, and this is your first time on the Fireside Chat. Welcome. You have a question for Tom. It's all yours. Thank you, Keith. Hi, Tom. Um, the other Hello. day I was in the car and um, driving with my family, and out of the blue, my 10-year-old son, Alexander, who, who watches your, your videos with me on YouTube quite often, asked me, uh, Dad, how do individuated units of consciousness, how, how are they created? And, of course, I had no idea how to answer that question. So I said to him, look, I'll ask Tom on the next fireside chat. So on behalf of my 10-year-old son, Alexander, <laughs> how are individuated units of consciousness created? Okay. Well, it's actually a very good question. Um, 
each if we say that um, each of the uh, what seven and a half billion of us that are walking around on this planet now, as far as we're just talking about the humans, of course, there's other individuated units of consciousness that are playing other critters, not just humans. Uh, there's lots of kind of critters that are conscious. But let's just talk about the humans for, for a minute. The population of humanity has been growing, and that means new IUOCs continually uh, need to uh, take those uh, avatars, or the larger conscious system would have to be playing an awful lot of avatars you know, on its own if, uh, if it didn't create new individuated units of consciousness as we go. So... I would say that the simple thing for it to do instead of playing all those parts would be to create more individuated units of consciousness to be the players of those avatars. How would it do that? I think the the simplest way and the easiest way for it to do that is simply a copy and paste. This is, after all, a digital system. And I would think it wouldn't start at the very bottom uh, of the uh, you know of the possibilities, on the very bottom of the possibilities are something maybe like the consciousness of a bumblebee, uh, you know, or a or a fish, or something that's it's clearly conscious because it makes choices, but uh, is not uh, not nearly the decision space that we humans have. So I would guess that it would pick a consciousness uh, that would be kind of mid mid range, middle range human. Start someplace in the middle and then let it either evolve or de-evolve from that, from that spot based on its choices. And to do that, it would just take a, um, you know, kind of your, your typical, your average. I don't know that it would pick a particular individual to duplicate, but it would probably just kind of find an average uh, uh, IUOC description, if you would, and just duplicate as many as it needed in whatever arrange, you know, in whatever types. They wouldn't all be the same because all IUCs are unique. So you just generate a, a, a selection from the possibilities. Again, probably another random selection from the possibilities, just like we do this reality, and draw out a whole bunch of uh, new IUCs. And they'd probably have an average, you know, an av- their average would be average, and there'd be some that were maybe uh, higher and some that were lower, just a, a, a selection from the, those possibilities. And that's then where those new IUOCs would come from. And they would start playing the characters that were available to them in, in uh, here. Now, that's kind of a mechanical description. Perhaps a better description would be to look, kind of move up a level to a big picture view. In the big picture view, IUOCs are just pieces of the larger consciousness system. So in another way, it could just, no, I use the term, you know, bubble up. It could just produce another subset of itself and play whatever characters, you know, it wanted. So we don't really have to think of these things as individual little chunks that are all unique and, you know, and alone and individual by themselves compared to the whole. They're really all just pieces of the whole. So the whole being big enough to have lots of excess processing power could just wrap up something and use that. You know, if you think of all of us as projections or pieces of the larger system, then it's not so much 
the mechanics of copying and you know pasting as it is just create another tentacle, another connection, you know, to that avatar from the whole. So that would be a more holistic, bigger picture view of it rather than the mechanical view of find an av- find a typical avatar and you know and duplicate it. But it is a good question, and it also brings the question, well, what happens if there's a real big disaster and we go from 7.5 million to only, you know, 5 million? What do you do with all the excess IUOCs, right? Well, they uh, could move on to other places that didn't have a disaster because there's other reality systems that are going besides this one. That would be that would be one thing. Or it could branch off another whole... Uh, um, universe and populate it it could be even a it could be even a a copy of this one and you know it could do that so a digital system has so much flexibility that it's really hard to say it's one of those things where there's probably 20 different ways to you know meet any particular problem and it just picks the one that's easiest for it to do the most effective and the most efficient process so there'll always be something to do, even whether our population goes up or down. Um, you know, there will be a, a place for everybody to continue their their evolution. That's not a that's not an issue. So I hope that uh, explains it to your son in, in some in some way. And of course, I'm again I'm guessing based on my sense of how the larger kind of system usually works and picking those things that seem to me to be the most effective and and uh, parsimonious the most efficient processes you know Tom it was a particularly good question and especially from the fact that it was from a 10 year old so Alexander if you're watching this <laughs> well done mate very impressed okay um, good stuff right Tom listen although it's going to be over for better or worse by the time people watch this I just have to ask Adam's uh, question about the US presidential election um, <laughs> how important is this uh, by the time people watch this uh, was this US election you mentioned that politics reflects the quality of consciousness of a society how does one change corruption in politics or any field for that matter are elections like this influenced by NPMR parties or do parties in NPMR have stakes in PMR activities and dealings okay I think there was about three or four questions there so uh, um how the first one I think was how important is it to uh, you know participate in these elections and I'd say very important. Any place where you're enfranchised to vote, you ought to be paying attention to the possibilities and place your vote. To uh, not vote is a uh, a choice not to exercise you know your free will, not to exercise your uh, enfranchisement, and that is not a good thing. That's the way uh, democracies work. And if you wait until you get a candidate that represents your ideas, you may never vote because that's not what it's like when you're in a democracy that has a very large population. You uh, may not get a candidate that, that uh, you know, is one that you think is wonderful. That just might not happen because it's not just you that is doing this it's not all about you it's all about what your whole culture and your society and your country whatever the 
whatever the entity is that's doing the voting, it's uh, it's yes, the larger conscious or the uh, quality of the organization, whether it's a country or a, you know your your school board, the quality of the people in the organization are the ones that set the standard for that organization, and their politics is going to represent that level of quality that's typical for that organization. Now, what can you do about it? How can you change, you know, corruptions and things that you don't like? The most effective way that any individual can can contribute is to fix themselves. You can't fix anybody but you. And when you fix yourself, that's a bigger contribution than most of us might think. When you fix yourself, you actually affect all those people that interact with you, that deal with you. It's not just you. Makes a, it makes a difference all around. When you grow up, you help other people grow up. You make it easier for them to grow up. You give them an environment that, that is uh, more conducive for their growth. So that's how you deal with corruption is, is don't exemplify that corruption. You know, you outgrow it. You grow beyond it. You evolve your quality of consciousness. And that's the biggest contribution that you can make. Many people don't look at it that way. They think, well, what we need to do is take the, you know, the, the leadership and get rid of those guys and put in better guys. Well, that is a symptom reliever. You're right. If you get rid of the dictator and bring in somebody who is more caring and, and considerate and cares more about the people, that will, in, in the short term, seem better. But in the long term, the way your country's run is going to be a reflection of the people in the country and the level of their, their own quality of consciousness. So you may have things, you know, sometimes you may make it better for a short time, but it's symptomatic relief. It's not really fixing the problem. Fixing the problem, you have to change the quality of consciousness within that political unit, within that organization or country or whatever. So that's the key. Long-term fix that really lasts for a long time, lasts forever, is the people have to grow up. The electorate has to grow up. That's the way you change corruption. Well, you can also talk about it to other people. You can try to uh, in educate others as to why corruption is a bad idea uh, in the big picture and the little picture. Uh, and that may help others agree with you, but that's... That's about it. Actually, getting rid of the dictator and replacing him with a more benevolent dictator or even with some other form of government, um, if it doesn't reflect the people, it won't last long. That's the problem. So I don't know if I answered all the questions. I got at least three of them. Is there any that I missed, Keith? I'm just looking at oh. them, Tom. How yeah, there was one. Option? Yeah, yeah. Whether or not NPMR has a has a dog in the fight, whether or not they they get involved or care what we do in our elections, and the answer to that is yes, they do have a dog in the fight. Uh, their their connection to it is that the system, the larger conscious system, would really like us to grow up and evolve the quality of our consciousness because that's evolution. We evolve, it evolves, so it would like that to happen if it sees things 
kind of going bad, if you will, where it looks like a lot of de-evolution is going to take place, then it's concerned about that. Now, it doesn't get involved to the point that it's going to reach in at the big hand of the programmer and, you know, change things around. We have free will. Nothing's going to, to um, change that. It's, nothing's going to come in and force us to have a different outcome. We get the outcome that we create. That's the way the game's played. But the game also allows non-physical to influence the physical. Can't force it. Can't push it. Not supposed to even trick it. It's But it can send um, messages and feelings and thoughts, basically, that are intuitive. So that your intuition, you might look at the political situation and your intuition may say, oh, this is just not good, you know, we need to change this, or this is heading in the wrong direction. So you might get that from the larger consciousness system, or if you were a negative entity that was trying to sow chaos, you might get just the opposite. You may get something that would push you in the opposite direction. So that limited um, message, if you will, to the intuition, one that you can accept or reject, you, you still have the free will to, you know, to ignore it or not ignore it. Uh, that is done, mainly done at higher levels, not lower levels, because that's where the leverage is. You get more money out of, out of uh, uh, giving intuitive suggestions to the movers and shakers than you do of giving intuitive suggestions to the little people at the bottom of the, of the pile. So, yes, there is some of that, but it's not intrusive, and the people there still have their free will to make whatever decision they think is right. So, yes, there's some, there's, there's some connection to it, though. It's not like the two are totally, uh, you know, uh, independent of each other. Okay. You know, some people tell me all, all week, you know, all, last month, really, people have been emailing us from around the world. And, and the general consensus is, well, Americans are going to get what they deserve. Now, I don't think that's generally a fair comment. Would, would you like to say what you think about that? Well, you know, that's uh, by definition in a democracy, you always get what you deserve because the result is the result of the voters, right? Now, unless the uh, religion, unless the the, uh, the polls are rigged, or you know, there's some other kind of thing that that uh, makes that not what's going on. It's not really a democracy. You know, there there it's not an honest and free election. Then you don't necessarily get what you know what you deserve. You don't necessarily get a reflection of the the uh, the voters. You get a reflection of whoever is wheeling and dealing, and and uh, you know interrupting the democratic process but let's just assume that it is in general a democratic process even though there's probably cheating around the edges if it's a if it's a dominantly a democratic process then you do get what you deserve in the sense that you know you came up with the choices whatever your process was and you make your choices and that's what your process delivered so that's what you deserve if you don't like that then maybe you need to change your process of you know creating candidates maybe you need more uh, uh, constraints on on vetting the qualifications or something else but if you don't have those 
then you kind of get what you deserve. So I kind of agree with that in that sense that if it is an honest election, then that's by definition true. That doesn't mean everybody gets what they deserve because you have lots of people, you know, who are, who are pro or against, you know, whatever it is. And you say, well, they didn't get what they deserve, but it's not about individuals. This is about a, a culture or a country or, or actually not even the populace. It's about the electorate because there's a lot of people here that live here that can't vote, you know, whether it's because of prison records or because they aren't uh, having become citizens yet or whatever. So there's a lot of people in the population that have to take what they get rather than get what they deserve. That's true. But for the majority, for the electorate anyway, they get what they deserve. If they stay home and don't vote and it comes out in a way they don't like, well, you know, they get what they deserve. In recent and, if years, they, and, if they try, and if they vote and it still doesn't come out the way they like, well, they did their best. Then they have to accept that the majority went, went in a different direction. So then we deal with it like everything else. Stuff happens and we get to deal with it, you know, good, bad or indifferent. Right. I mean, in, in recent years, Tom, there's been a very, with, with the exception of the, the recent Brexit vote in the United Kingdom, there's been a very, very low voter turnout for the last five, ten years. And, and, and so general apathy is, is really not an excuse. So whatever, whatever elections they are, people do need to vote and have their, their voice heard. So um, let, let's move on. Uh, Sveta, good afternoon. Uh, you have a couple of questions for Tom. Uh, I'm not sure which one you're going to ask, but uh, let's find out. I have two questions, and I'm very excited about both, but uh, I'm trembling about this one. Um, I don't know if I should just read it or ask it in my words. I don't like the question, how I formed it before. Well, just ask it in your words, then. In my words. Once you started a very mesmerizing explanation on how you scan the question, uh, if not the questioner himself, how you consider many ways to answer each question, even to the point that your answer clears confusion and you form it in a different, uh, better way. Example, when I prepare my questions, I, got down, I get down a list of things to ask about, then I cross many out to comprise those into the short version. But when you answer, I find out that uh, you answer even crossed out questions on my list. More than that, uh, you answer the questions between the lines that I was thinking about, but I, it didn't come to my consciousness yet. It was unconscious. So uh, once you started to explain this, if you remember, and somebody interrupted you, and I was so like disappointed, and so I was uh, awaiting for a chance to ask this question. Okay. If you know what I'm talking sure, about. Sure, sure. I've answered this several times, and the way it works most of the time, and everybody's different. You know, it's an individual sort of thing. Um, People who have spent some time thinking about their question, and the question isn't something that just popped into their head, but this is a question that is very significant to them. They spend a little time with it. Then they have, well, really a whole set of questions that have bubbled up into that particular question. And I have a couple of things that I try to do. I try to understand the, the asker's um, 
So viewpoint, the ask, why the asker is asking the question, what the question means to the asker, and all of the other things that would kind of be around that question, you know, kind of the bigger picture of the question rather than just the question itself. To do that, I have to connect with the asker and kind of explore a little bit of their mind as far as that question goes. I also, that's one thing I try to do, and I try to, to answer it in a complete way, because otherwise, if I answer it in a very curt way, you know, the short answer would just leave you with a whole bunch more questions. And then we'd have to go question after question, and, you know, 20 questions later, later you'd have your question answered. So I try not to go through that process because it's not efficient. I try to answer all those questions, even though you don't ask them. Um, a, a constraint I have is that in a small group like this, well, what is there now? We're looking at six of us here that uh, have, have our pictures up on, this, on the screen. Um, I also have to realize that there's going to be, you know, 50,000 people eventually listen to this. And I need to be careful out of that 50,000 that there aren't 10 or 20 or 30 that misunderstand in a way that's really very important to them that uh, they would uh, take it out of context or they wouldn't have the, you know, the right uh, um, background for it. So I have to be concerned with the larger audience. Well, they understand the answer to the question. So sometimes I have to throw in some background to make sure that that larger audience can follow both the question and the, and the answer. And sometimes I might give an answer to a group of six people that I wouldn't want to give to a group of 60,000 people because you have to be a little careful when you're talking to large groups of people. There's all sorts of people in there with all sorts of attitudes and ways of coming at it, and you don't want to do any harm. You don't want to set somebody off or generate fear or create problems for you know 50 people when 50,000 you know, look at it. It's so I have that in mind too. A little, and you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't uh, restrain myself that much, but I do look for places where it might hurt people if they misunderstand the the answer. So I take all of that together, and then I try to form an answer that meets all of those criteria. And I also watch the person as I talk to them, and I can see them thinking and feel their feelings as they're doing that. So if they're feeling still more confused, then I add more to it. If they look like they're getting it and it's satisfying, then I kind of add less to it. So I custom fit it for the person as they are thinking about the answer. So that's kind of the way I go about the questions. The, the upside of that is if you get if you get to a point you can ask a question you usually get a very thorough answer the downside is my answers are very long so tom campbell doesn't have any short answers pretty much for questions they tend to go on and on and on and if that's not your question then you wish that i would do it in a lot you know a fewer words because uh it's somebody else's question not yours so that's the that's another constraint i have to try not to drag it out too long, uh, even if the person really would like more. So that's kind of the way I approach 
the questions. Now, in this uh, forum, I very seldom get a chance to actually read the questions ahead of time. So when I get these questions, though they are listed ahead of time, and occasionally I find the time to sit down and, and read over them and kind of think a little bit about, you know, how I might answer them. But most of the time when I hear them here, I'm hearing them for the first time. It, uh, my day tends to be busy like that. Some of the time I get to prepare. Yeah, some uh, I've heard some people complaining that uh, when you answer, you answer uh, in many different ways the same question. Mm. But I don't see it. I see it that uh, it just uh, I don't see the repeatance. But I see how they see the repeatance. You know. Yes. Yes. Well, that, that comes because everybody kind of has their own approach, their own way of thinking about something. And I have learned that you can say something that is perfectly clear to person A, but person B just doesn't get it. And if you say it just a little differently, if you can say it from a little different viewpoint, person B gets it right away. But from the different viewpoint, they miss it entirely. So I tend to go through three or four or five different viewpoints and I do that because we're going to have this larger audience of thousands and thousands of people with all sorts of different viewpoints. And I'd like as many people as possible to actually understand the answer. So if I, have, if I only answer it directly and in one view, from one viewpoint, then I'm only going to get 10 or 20% of the people who really get it that way. Now, the ones that do get it that way, it'll be short and sweet and efficient, and it works great for them, but it doesn't work at all for lots of other people. So I, I try to answer it for the large group. Yeah, and plus it's hard to uh, understand everything you're saying from the first time. I usually listen a few more times, and every time I hear yeah. more and more. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And you're welcome. Second question sometimes later. Oh, Sveta, go ahead, do it now. You're, you're here and you're in the moment. Go for it. Boy, I have to prepare. Okay. Uh, not, not now, then, if you don't want. Okay. After somebody. Okay. No, that's not a problem. Okay, listen, Tom, then. I'm going to give you a question on partition by Tim C. Can the partition between the free awareness unit and the individuated unit of consciousness be deleted during this PMR experience packet? Meaning... Can we unite without our UOC before the end of this packet? I'm asking you because you talked about death and how that partition is eventually gone and we eventually see through the IUOC's eyes. Yes, the answer to that is yes, we can. Uh, even while we're here uh, and that partition is in place, once we become aware of our consciousness and the larger consciousness system, once we have that awareness with our mind, then we can move about. We can, we can explore that consciousness system. Uh, we're not limited just to what our avatar might normally uh, you know, perceive in this physical reality. We can go beyond that. We can get into the larger consciousness system and perceive things in other reality frames. And when we do that, the... IUOC, of which we're part, is just another is another actor, another player, another entity within that larger system. So we can indeed interact with it from the larger consciousness system. 